are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. We're here together for a live question and answer time. It's our YouTube channel, and it's our live question and answer on a Thursday afternoon. Although for me, I don't know if you can tell, but this isn't afternoon, it's evening. Uh, I'm here in Sweden. I'm here in traveling in Europe. Today I'm visiting with a bunch of pastors and church workers. I'll be together with them for the next few days. And uh, it's my privilege to come and just spend a little bit of time with them and with family here in Sweden. So today it's live from uh, Elegos in here in Sweden. Um, that's like Elk or uh, Moose Hill. That's where I are not right now. It's just a small village sort of in the middle of Sweden. And again, as I said, I'm gathered here with a lot of um, pastors, or I should say a small group of pastors and Christian workers from Sweden, Finland, Germany. Uh, we've come together here just for these days. These are people that I've known for a long time. And we just enjoy the opportunity to get together and just sort of encourage one another in the Lord and in the ministry that God's given us to do. So I'm excited to be able to spend the next hour or so with you answering your questions live. We're going to deal first with the lead question of something that's come in from the last week. And then after the lead question, uh, I'll open it up for whatever questions come in on the live chat. So again, Pleased that you could join us here today. Happy that you could make it. And uh, let me go forward with one other thing before we get into our lead question for the day. I, I do want to um, point out that today it's a very interesting, and if I could say momentous time uh, for me to be in Europe, where today uh, soldiers from the Russian Federation have invaded Ukraine. Uh, I guess in the opinion of a lot of people, it's the most serious military event to happen in Europe for many, many years. And I, I just want to say uh, that I really don't have much to say to this specific situation. Um, I, I do think that there are a lot of voices out there speaking to the unfolding events, and I'm grateful for many of them. But the nature of the ministry that I have online has not primarily been something where I've responded uh, to unfolding current events as they happen. You know, per perhaps in some ways at certain times, but it's certainly not a major theme of what I think God has given me to do uh, online uh, and in the ministry I put forth here. And let me say again, it's not because I don't think it's important or it's not happy. I'm not happy that I don't want to imply that I'm not happy that there are other people out there doing that kind of work. Um, but you see, I think that no matter what's going on in the world, there's an ongoing need for the general spiritual health and building up of God's people in and through his word. And that's just simply going to remain my focus. So um, I'm really not going to give any kind of great analysis or evaluation or any of the military events of the day. Um, you can look to other folks for that. And again, I, I hope you'll find some helpful and edifying things. 
But I don't think that any of the passing events of the day take away from the um, just important ongoing need that we have for spiritual growth, for spiritual edification in and through God's Word. And that's really the, the task that God has given me to do primarily in my ministry. So uh, with that, let me get to the first question that we're going to begin with today. It's a lead question that comes in from Teresa. Teresa sent us the question and simply asked, how many heavens are there? Uh, how does one learn about them in the Bible? Well, Teresa, I, let me just answer this way, that when most people talk about how many heavens there are in the Bible, they usually have a primary passage in mind, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Let me read that to you. It says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now here, the Apostle Paul, and we, we, we gather this, it's not immediately apparent from the words he spoke uh, just in verse 2. But as he develops the thought later on there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it becomes very clear that the, this man that Paul knew was actually um, himself. And that he's referring to himself in the third person, really out of humility and out of reluctance to put himself first. Which I've got to say, first of all, is really a remarkable thing that Paul had this very impressive spiritual experience. And yet he only brought it up reluctantly. And uh, he only brought it up because he was convinced that it would be of great need and edification for other people. But pa Paul apparently didn't talk to anybody about this for 14 years, or at least we have no record of that at all. In any regard, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul mentions this idea of the third heaven. And when you bring up something like that, the third heaven, the immediate response that many of us have is, okay, well, that's the third heaven. Well, what about heaven number one and heaven number two? And then are there multiple heavens after that? Are we talking about different gradations of heaven, different levels, different compartments of heaven? What, what, what are we talking about? What, what did Paul mean by the third heaven? And how many heavens are there anyway? Well, let, let me give a quick answer, and then I'll kind of go in and fill in some details. Here's the quick answer. The third heaven here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, does not refer to different levels of heaven or different, you know, areas of heaven. Even though I got to admit, there was some ancient Jewish rabbis who believed that it did, but I, I don't think that holds water. Instead, Paul was using the terminology that was common in the ancient world, which referred to three heavens. The blue sky heaven, that was the first heaven, then there's the night sky heaven, that's the second heaven, and then there's the third heaven, and the third heaven is the heaven where God himself lives. So the idea of the third heaven is just simply, that's the heaven where God lives. Now this is noted by commentators such as Adam Clark and other people, but one thing this is just based upon is, please remember that in many languages, I'm assuming this is true of ancient languages. I know it's true of many modern languages as well. The word for heaven 
and sky are actually the same word. And, and, and that's how it is in ancient Hebrew and in ancient Greek, these original source languages of the New Testament and the Old Testament. So since sky and heaven refer to the same, the, the, the same word is used to refer to different concepts, that, that's where you kind of fundamentally get the idea of the three heavens. So the first heaven, and this is an idea that's developed biblically, there's several places where the Bible uses the word heaven, at least in the original Hebrew or Greek, just as we would use the word for sky, as in the blue sky, the daytime sky, the sky that we see the clouds in, the sky that we see the birds in, the sky that we see the sun in. Um, for example, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, and in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, it, it speaks of the birds of the air or the birds of the heavens. It's the same word that could be translated either way. Uh, in James chapter 5, verse 18, it says that Elijah prayed and that the sky or the heavens brought forth rain. So this is just referring to the immediate atmosphere. Again, what we might commonly call the blue sky. That's the first earth, and the scripture makes reference of it in that terms as being the heavens. The second heaven... Again, the night sky, the starry sky, the sky that fills the stars and the moon at night. Um, that is also referred to in the Bible as a heaven. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19 says this, And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven, that you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Now notice this. They're looking up their eyes to the heaven, to the sky. Now they're seeing the sun that's in the daytime sky, but then also the moon and the stars. That's a reference to the night sky as being heaven in some sense. So here in these couple references that I pointed to, we have some kind of biblical reference to the, the first heaven, the blue sky, the second heaven, the night sky, or the starry sky. But then comes the third heaven. And it's referred to in a few interesting ways in the scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, speaks of the highest heaven. It says, indeed, heaven and earth and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God also the earth and all that is in it. Uh, so notice, he takes heaven there, the heaven and the highest heavens. So he would say the sky, but then also what is above the sky, the highest heavens of all, the heavens where God dwells. And then uh, I would also point out that in Psalm 148, verse 4, it speaks of the heavens of heavens, Psalm 148, uh, verse 4 says, Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. So the idea we have there is that there exists not just the heavens, but there is a heavens above the heavens. There's something even above the blue sky and the night sky. One other thing to consider. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says that when Jesus ascended to heaven, 
he passed through the first two heavens. Notice this. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, when Jesus ascended from earth to heaven, he passed through the blue sky and the night sky. He passed through the heavens to dwell in the heaven of heavens. So again, we just have these three concepts of heaven, the blue sky, the night sky, and the place where God dwells. Now, let me make one more point regarding the heaven where God dwells. Relevant to this is that uh, simply to say that heaven is an actual place. Again, I I just want to be a little um, uh, straightforward with that. Heaven is an actual place where God dwells. Um, I I like how it says this in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Here, the writer of the Hebrews says, Now this is the main point of the things which we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In other words, this is fact. There is a location in this universe, and Jesus Christ is there enthroned in the heavens. Now, I can't tell you what those heavens are. I can't tell you that it's, you know, off this corner of the Milky Way next to the Andromeda galaxies. No, we're not talking about spatial things like that. I I think more than anything, we would talk about heaven being of a different dimension than ours. That spatially speaking, distantly speaking, heaven is not far away, but it is of a different nature, a different material, a different dimension. But it's real. And Jesus Christ is enthroned on high right now in the heaven where God dwells. So uh, again, I think these are important concepts. And Teresa, I hope that answer is helpful for you. Just again, to emphasize the simple idea that heaven is real and there really is only one heaven where God dwells, just one, um, or where God's dwelling place is. Of course, God dwells in the blue sky. He dwells, there's no corner of the universe in which God is restricted from. However, when we think of the dwelling place of God, what we're normally talking about is the third heaven, not the blue sky or the starry sky. Hope that helps you there, Teresa. And uh, let me go on to the next questions here. First of all, we've got a question from YouTube coming from Tim, who says this. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, when Jesus walked on water and the disciples thought it was a ghost, does this prove that ghosts are real? No, Tim, that's a great question. Matthew chapter 14, verse 26 does say this. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. Um, Tim, I don't think that it proves at all that ghosts are real. And by ghosts, we would define it as this, as the dead coming back to earth 
and walking or dwelling or, or moving, if you want to say, among uh, people on earth as some sort of a spirit or spiritual being or spiritual projection. Um, no, I, I don't think that it proves that ghosts are real at all. All it proves is that the disciples had a superstitious belief in what is said to be ghosts. Uh, no, the, the Bible nowhere gives us the idea that the dead live or walk among us as ghosts in any sense. That idea is completely foreign to the Bible. And if you remember, there's a couple situations. One, where at the very end of the book of 1 Samuel, I believe that God sent Samuel back on a very specific mission to announce judgment to King Saul. But I wouldn't describe him as a ghost. Uh, there was no mystery to it at all. Saul knew who it was. Uh, the medium who called up uh, Saul and, or excuse me, Samuel, and and you know, uh, received much more than she ever bargained for. In, in as a result of it, she knew what was going on, and he he came to bring a very specific announcement of judgment. Uh, the only other thing that we would have is in regard to. Um, again, I'm talking about ghosts. When Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, you wouldn't define those as ghosts. Those seem to have some kind of bodily appearance. Um, so we just don't have this idea of ghosts appearing in the Bible. No, all Matthew 14, 26 demonstrates is that the disciples believed, and I would say had a superstitious belief in ghosts, not one that was informed from the scriptures themselves. Okay, next question also comes from YouTube from Lynette. She says, um, my question is in regard to the parable of the ten virgins. Is this prophetic? Well, Lynette, I think it is prophetic. I think in the passage, uh, Jesus specifically points to it having a prophetic meaning. Uh, I've got a computer right in front of me. So what I'm going to do is go over to Matthew chapter 25 in, if I could be so brash, in my own Bible commentary that's online, the Enduring Word Bible commentary, EnduringWord.com. There I am, just kind of shilling for my own commentary here. Um, yes, in the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And here, um, Jesus is following up from Matthew chapter 24, where he gave a parable that was meant to emphasize the need for readiness among believers, readiness for the coming of Jesus. So he flows right into Matthew chapter 25 with another parable uh, stressing the same point. Now, I, I believe that very much Matthew chapter 25 has to do with the parable of the ten virgins, that it is um, prophetic. What, what I would kind of question a bit is, is um, reading too much into this parable. In other words, when you take a look at the parable of the ten virgins, what you see is that um, five were wise and five were foolish. I don't know that that's necessarily relating a specific proportion of believers who will be found faithful at the end. I mean, it could be, 
But the main point of the parables isn't to give uh, minute detail in meaning or interpretation, but rather just a general sense. And the general sense of the parable of the ten virgins is very clear. There's really no idea to dispute it. The general sense is be ready. Uh, just as Jesus says here in verse 13, watch therefore you do not know, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So that's really the lesson for us. Watch therefore we don't know the day or the hour. So um, yes, I do think it's prophetic, but I would just caution against being, um, we, we just run into some trouble when we interpret the parables uh, assigning a highly theological significance to each individual point instead of just taking them as a whole for what they are. So thank you there for that question there, Lynette. Next question comes from Kevin, who asks, is Russia Magog? Uh, well, pr I'll say this, Kevin, probably. Um, the, the commentaries, the research that I've read uh, give some kind of a geographical association with a Gog and Magog. Uh, that's a ruler and the people or the nation of the ruler. And uh, most commentaries that I've read, that I've researched, give uh, pretty much a unified sense that it is, in fact, referring to uh, what we would call the nation or the community of Russia. So uh, how much that would be the exact geographical boundaries of Russia today. I don't know if I would say that, but just in general, uh, the people and the cultures that inhabit that land. Uh, I haven't heard a compelling argument that it means anything else other uh, than being Russia. So Kevin, I would say yes. Uh, the best indication I would say is that yes, it's likely that when the Bible talks about Gog and Magog, it's talking about Russia its leaders, its people. Uh, next one comes from, again on YouTube, from PKWJTW. Uh, and the question is specifically this. How do I approach what the Bible says about old earth, new earth, dinosaurs, and millions of years, especially when talking about it with children? Well, Christians are confronted with this, aren't we? We're confronted with the idea of, um, I believe that the most straightforward understanding of the Bible lends itself to seeing a young earth. Now, I, I'm not going to define a young earth by a specific amount of years. You know, I've heard estimates, of course, the classic uh, Usher chronology has the earth about 6,000 years old, 7,000, whatever it would be today. Then, of course, there's uh, other chronologies where people suggest 10,000, 20,000 years. But there's a big difference between uh, those relatively low numbers and then the um, multiple millions or billions of years that are understood to be for uh, the Earth under old Earth conceptions. So I would just simply say this that we are grateful for scientific discovery. I don't know about you, but I am grateful for scientific discovery. And I, I say to scientists, go out and learn, go out and do the very best you can. And I, I believe that the more you learn, the more you know, the more it'll bring you into alignment with the truth. 
So I don't think that the problem is that science knows too much. Not at all. If there is a problem to be said about this, it's that science doesn't know enough uh, and that it needs to keep digging. I, I wish I had the chapter and verse for this proverb at hand. But in Proverbs, it is Proverbs, isn't it? I believe it is. Uh, in Proverbs, it says, um, it's the glory of kings to search out a matter and it's the glory of God to conceal it. You know, part of our human glory is expressed in the simple pursuit of knowledge. And, and that's something good. We, we want to encourage scientists to do that. But at the same time, we recognize that there are things in this universe that God has concealed. Doesn't mean that people shouldn't search out after the answers, but that the answers are just not going to be known uh, at least not for a long time. So again, uh, I would just teach about these things that um, some people, I, I would teach a child, some people say that the earth is very old. Um, we believe, and again, I, I know that there's debate among Christians on this, but I, I would just state it as I would state it in my own home. Uh, but I would say, but we believe that the earth is relatively young. Um, and there was time enough for the dinosaurs, time enough for other things. Um, so I, I, I just don't let those things uh, bother me. or, or um, I, I'm comfortable putting them side by side. I, I don't think that we should make children suspicious of scientific discovery and research. Uh, although, let's face it, there's more than a few scientists who are worthy of skepticism. Uh, but not those just general principles of seeking out after uh, science and its principles. So hope that's helpful for you there. Let me go on to the next question from Carmel. Carmel asks this on YouTube. Uh, is there one definition in scripture for prophet or prophesy? Are there different kinds of prophets or prophecies? Well, uh, I would say there are different kinds of prophets or prophecies. I would say that there were uh, prophets that God had for the church that were on a foundational level. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that God has laid a foundation uh, in and through the apostles and prophets. And, and once God has laid that foundation, I don't think we need to lay another foundation, further foundations on top of it. It just doesn't work that way. So there was a, uh, a calling, an office of foundational apostles and prophets that is never going to be replicated. You will not have today a prophet who speaks with authority to the entire church worldwide. Uh, we have a Bible for that today. Uh, we don't need an authoritative voice extra biblically, uh, at least not authoritative in that sense of being authoritative for all believers, uh, binding their conscience, to use that phrase. So um, that was different with the prophets of the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament who were called by God. Now, since we have the completed canon of God's revelation, I do believe that God has people that he uses to give forth prophetic words. And if somebody wants to call such a person a prophet, 
I, I don't particularly like it because I think it makes people weird when they receive such a title. Um, if I go in and introduce myself to you as Prophet David Guzik, uh, you, you would have reason to just look at me very differently than if I just referred to myself as David Guzik or Pastor David Guzik. So I, I think that this um, idea in the modern sense is that prophets are very much subject to Christians or to um, the, the, the measure of truth among Christians, that being the Bible itself. And in particular, we mean that the, um, uh, the, these prophets do not speak with universal authority. So Carmel, yes, I, um, I, I would say that there are uh, differences in that regard. Um, I, again, I just, I would just absolutely reject the idea that any prophet would speak today with uh, equal authority to Scripture. No, it's just not going to happen. It's, it's, it's excluded, biblically speaking. Okay, next question comes from uh, SNL, coming from YouTube again. Uh, SNL asks, I'm looking to understand more about evangelism. I find myself feeling skeptical about street evangelism and those indicating that saying a prayer counts them as saved. Okay, yes, now I understand your skepticism about street evangelism. And I would say this, is that there's always some place for street evangelism, but um, if a culture in general isn't receptive to street evangelism, then um, it has value as being a simply simple proclamation of the gospel, of course. But maybe more effort should be put in time into forms of evangelism that are more received by the culture. Uh, so I think that's something we got to do. That's what any missionary does whenever they go to a new country. They look around and they say, okay, what is it in our particular country that would be culturally relevant ways, uh, way, ways with a good honest, full of integrity way that we can come and develop an evangelist connection with the people that we're speaking to. And it's also finding out ways that aren't culturally relevant. Well, again, I don't put a big emphasis on street evangelism, uh, even though I, I respect the people who do it, and I do think that there is a place for it, but I just don't think that it is a primarily... I think it is more for the purpose of providing Christian witness, which has its place and is important, than it is actually an instrument of effective evangelism. Um, and then also, you, the idea, you're having trouble with the idea of a prayer counting people as saved. Look, at SNL, let, let me put it to you this way. Uh, on the one hand, I know what you're talking about. Because... Um, we, we, we don't want to encourage or cultivate or promote the idea of a superficial conversion or commitment, uh, conversion or commitment to Jesus Christ. We, we don't want that superficial kind of thing at all. However, we do believe what the Bible says. If a person calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. And it's not just as simple as saying the words. It has to be something that goes beyond mere words into the heart as well, into the life as well. But it, th th that work has a beginning point. 
And that beginning point of the heart and the life is with a proclamation, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, um, no, uh, prayer, saying a prayer to be saved is not the only thing that counts. There has to be repentance. There has to be a life that is surrendered to God and in alignment with his will. Um, but it's a beginning, and it can be cherished as a beginning for what, what it is. Okay, let me go next to Tunnel Banan, Banan uh, there in uh, Sweden. Hello from Sweden. There you go. Good to see you. The question is this. If the eternal punishment for sin is burning alive in hell for all of eternity, why isn't Jesus burning alive in hell forever for our sin? His suffering on the cross wasn't forever. That is a great question, and I think I have a very simple and straightforward answer to it. Let me read it once again, just in case some of our viewers or listeners didn't quite catch it. Here's the question. If the eternal punishment for sin is burning alive in hell for all of eternity, then why isn't Jesus burning alive in hell forever for our sins? His suffering on the cross wasn't forever. Okay, here's the answer to that question. It's the simple difference between a perfect payment and an incomplete payment. In other words, any payment that you or I, imperfect human beings, would make for uh, our sin problem, those payments would be, by their very nature, imperfect and therefore incomplete. And if a payment is imperfect and incomplete, it has to be continually repeated. And that's what happens again and again with this whole idea of somebody uh, paying for their sin, so to speak, for eternity. You could say that every soul receiving divine punishment in hell could be freed from hell if they could offer a perfect payment for their sin. But here's really the problem, isn't it? They can't offer a perfect payment for their sin. It's impossible because they are not perfect beings. But we thank the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for his wonderful, amazing plan by which he has sent forth his Son in his divine perfection to be that atonement for sin that we needed, that perfect atonement for sin. Because Jesus could offer a perfect payment, it needed to be once for all. It did not have to be repeated. But where an imperfect payment is made, it has to be repeated again and again, and in this case, for all of eternity. Okay, let me continue on. Next question from Betty comes on. And Betty asks this, Many Christians say that no one dies before their time set by God. But I have to wonder if some people have their lives stolen. Examples, murder, suicide, abortion, drunk driver, accident, etc. Well, Betty... I think this is really a matter of perspective. On the one perspective, you could say this, that uh, the Bible says that it's the devil that has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And we see uh, the devil doing that work, stealing people's lives, killing them, 
destroying their lives. Well, the, the idea then is that how could it be said that that person's time is set by God if the devil can steal it in some way? And it's just simply this, that the devil can only operate within the broader um, arena or fence, if you will, of God's permission. That's just how it works. The, the devil can't do anything without God allowing it to happen. And there are things that happen very much so in this world that aren't God doing them directly, but God definitely allowing them to happen. Um, so uh, God has to allow, but it can still be the devil doing the activity of the work. And so um, we can say that both things are true. There is some sense in which the devil does steal somebody's life, but ultimately the devil can't do anything without God's permission or allowance. So that's how we understand that. Okay, let me go to the next question by Richard. Richard asked this question. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, why is grace attributed to Jesus Love to God and fellowship to the Holy Spirit. It's a great verse there. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14 is a wonderful blessing from the Apostle Paul where he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Such a beautiful thing. And what Richard is asking is, why? Why did these things get attributed? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Why did uh, Paul write it in that way, in that sense? And let me just say that um, I don't think there's any firm answer on that. In other words, you could substitute. Yes, there is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hello, Demetri. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Aiden. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to a YouTuber. Come on over and say hi to my YouTube audience. This hello, is my friend Dimitri. Hello. That's right. How are you doing? That's good. So, yes, Dimitri's here for our little time together here yes. in Evansos. Yes, absolutely. Welcome. So thank you. I'm here in the middle answering questions. Somebody's asking, why is grace attributed to Jesus, love to God, and fellowship to the Holy Spirit? here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. All right. And, and I'm just simply explaining that there's really no particular um, reason why mm. these attributes could be just as much attributed. You, you could say uh, the grace of God the Father, mm -hmm. the love of Jesus Christ. All right. You could, but I, I think if there's anything, obviously we would say it's because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But um, we would also say that there was a particular grace, unmerited favor, mm -hmm. uh, given in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Right. We would say there was a remarkable love shown by God the Father in giving the Son. And surely it's the communion of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that brings us together. So, um, again, it, it's really a matter of you could interchange these things. 
the members of the Trinity are not in competition on these things, but it's just something that the Holy Spirit wanted to emphasize. In yeah, and also like we, we think in regards of the law. Yes. You know, the law was given to us through Moses, but the grace, grace and the truth was given to us through Christ Jesus. That's fantastic. Mm. That's fantastic. That really highlights the area where Jesus is sort of preeminently identified with grace. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So even though John wrote that, that passage you just mentioned, John chapter 1, Paul, who wrote 2 Corinthians, was very much aware of that principle. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yes, it is. Because isn't a Christian life, it's, it's all about grace, it truth, is. and grace. That's right. And this is a wonderful combination yes. that can be found yes. only in Christ. That's right. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. Fantastic. Free gift. That's right. Something we cannot deserve. Never could deserve. No, only we can receive it freely by faith. Oh. What a... What a blessing Amen. and what a freedom. Amen. And we even read these passages in the Bible. Yes, yes. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. Thank you, Dimitri. Thank you so much. Oh, Please continue. You so I sorry for None the You are not interrupting at all. all right. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Uh, what a blessing. Okay, let me go on to the next question here. I'm just wondering if anybody else is going to walk in. Um, I'm doing this in the kitchen here of the home that we're all meeting in here. And I've invited people from our group if they'd like to wander in there. So only Dimitri's done so, so far. Thank, Thank you, you Dimitri. Bye. Thank you. Okay, um, from CW has this question. I'm getting ready to be one of the core group and elders of a church plant. What advice would you give in regard to sermon prep, Series selection for a new church and essential resources for a bivocational teacher. Well, first of all, CW, let me just tell you, God bless you and congratulations on being part of this church plant. I think it's an important work that God gives us to do to plant churches and planting churches is a good work. Um, so I'm happy to hear that you're part of the core part of uh, that. Uh, myself, in my life, in my ministry, having been part of two church plants, I know what a blessing is. It's a thrill. It's truly exhilarating in the Lord to be a part of that. So let me give you a couple pieces of advice. Um, in regard to sermon prep and series selection. When people plant a church, they often feel, or they suppose, maybe is a better way to put it, they often suppose that they're going to build a strong and, um, uh, we we'll say strong and successful, growing church uh, on the basis of being mighty in the pulpit. You know, if I'm a Spurgeon in the pulpit, then people will come. People will be drawn to it. Look, let's face it. We're, we're not really Spurgeons in the pulpit, are we? I mean, we're, we're who we are. And, and I think God has a place for us and God has a blessing for it. But what I'm saying is you're going to build a successful church plant more by one-on-one -on -one discipleship and cultivation of a strong core and, and just 
feet on the ground, getting out there with your people and connecting with them. More than being a giant, so to speak, in the pulpit. Now, I hope that nobody misunderstands what I'm saying. I'm obviously a big believer in preaching. Hey, that's, that's the majority of my ministry, and it has been for decades. I am a preacher, and I love to preach. And I know and I hope I sense I understand the importance of preaching. But, but preaching is not by any means the only thing that God uses to build a church. I think it's an important component, maybe even essential component, but it's, it's not the only thing. So don't lock yourself up in the study for 30 hours and then uh, think that, you know, uh, you'll just emerge with a holy vision upon your face and then capable and set up to, uh, you know, impact the community. Get out there and rub shoulders with and connect with your people broadly. When it comes to the preaching, have these goals for your preaching. Clarity and simplicity. Make those the key goals for your preaching. Clarity and simplicity. Um, which I think are powerful and eloquent all in their own. And as far as essential resources for a bivocational teacher, look, I mean, I, not to, you know, promote my own work, but uh, I, I do know that my Bible commentary, which can be found at EnduringWord.com, also at BlueLetterBibleBLB.org, uh, my Bible commentary, I know because a lot of bivocational pastors tell me that they rely on it as a helpful resource, especially because of the way that my commentary is laid out. It's laid out in what I regard to be a very easy-to-use format, especially that you can scan it quickly and get the information that you want quickly. It's not written in normal paragraph format but more in an expanded outline format. So um, I think that that can be a helpful resource uh, for uh, a busy bivocational pastor. My heart genuinely really is extended towards bivocational pastors, pastors who have another job in addition to whatever they do as a pastor, uh, because that's how most or an awful lot of the pastors of the world are. And God loves them and God uses them in the work that they do. Okay, here's another question from uh, Andrea Peters. I don't know if it's Andrea or Andrea, but Andrea Peters asked this question from YouTube. What does it mean when Scripture warns us not to take of the bread and wine in an unworthy manner? We've been taught that this means not partaking of punitive communion for being unmarried with children. Um, and I, I, I would disagree with that application of that verse. The portion of scripture that you're referring to here in, um, oh, come on now, the, uh, in 1 Corinthians, what is it, chapter 10, um, that passage where it talks about referring to taking communion in an unworthy manner, what it really refers to is um, 
Well, just that, the manner in which they were receiving communion. They were receiving it in a rude, disrespectful, selfish manner. In other words, they were um, crowding the table of communion. They were greedy at the table of communion. The actual manner in which they were sharing this fellowship meal at which they had communion was unworthy of the great thing that God had done for them at the cross in Jesus Christ. Um, it doesn't mean that sin necessarily disqualifies a person from the Lord's table. When we're sinners, we need what the Lord's table gives to us. Now, let me give a caveat there. If a person is in known harbored, cherished, unconfessed sin, that's a different matter. Then there's almost a mocking in the receiving of communion. It's mocking in the sense uh, that it's saying, Lord, uh, I take this bread and cup, uh, which speaks of the great sacrifice that you made at the cross, uh, for my sin, but I have no intention of giving up my sin. That is, in some ways, a mockery of what Jesus came to do for us. But if a person is repentant of their sin, sorrowful for their sin, I would say they are welcome to come to the table of communion. It's not the presence of sin that should exclude a person from the Lord's table. It's their attitude towards such sin and their attitude being one of cherishing it, holding it, refusing to repent of that sin. So I uh, hope that helps you there, uh, Andrea. Okay, next question comes from Facebook from Angelina, asks this question. I became a newborn believer eight months ago. Congratulations, Angela. Uh, I was Catholic for 38 years. My husband and daughter still identify themselves as Catholics and refuse to come to church with me. They don't go to Mass only occasionally or are trying to get, God, get closer to God, neither. I've been praying for them to find the truth, but nothing yet. Should I encourage them to at least go to Mass on a regular basis? All right. Angela, there's a few dynamics to your question that kind of limit my ability to give you, I think, really a great answer to this. But let me try here. Um, if your husband and daughter, that's who we're talking about, your husband and daughter, if they had any kind of meaningful connection with Jesus Christ in and through the Mass, that, that maybe you could pray that them going there is better than nothing. But if you sense or know that there is no real meaningful connection to Jesus Christ for your husband and daughter as they go to Mass then uh, I would not encourage, I would not discourage them from going, but I would not encourage them. Because for a person to attend religious services 
with a hard, rejecting heart of Jesus Christ, especially when there's an emphasis on ceremonialism and perhaps an absence of the presence or, or perceived presence of the, the living God, then their attendance at such religious services can cause more harm than good. So that's the thing I would want to know in your situation, Angela. I, I would want to know, do, do you think or know if it's likely or possible at all that your husband or daughter would truly receive something um, of Jesus in this? And I would base my answer based on that. But let me say, Angela, I am thrilled that God is moving in your life. And I want to assure you that God is moving in your life so that you can be um, a prayer for, a witness to, a testimony of your husband and your daughter, and who knows what great things God may do in and through them. So that was our last question here for the day. I'm going to reach back and grab our Swedish flag here and just say, uh, yes, here we are in the land of Sweden, a greeting from the middle of Sweden, where, again, I am here with a just a small, wonderful gathering of some pastors and Christian workers that I've known for a long time. We've missed each other's company because of COVID. We haven't had the opportunity to get together much. And so uh, this has been a great and beautiful time, and I'm looking forward to the next couple days when I can be there with them. Um, God willing, and if I live, uh, that's how James says we should speak about the future. Uh, to next Thursday, I'll be also doing uh, the live Q&A, also from Sweden again, but from a different part of the country, from the West Coast. But I'm so pleased that you could join me today. And again, I just ask that you continue to pray for what God is doing in the midst of these very tumultuous times that we experience. So I pray that God gives you blessing and wisdom and protects you. And uh, we pray that God would really uh, work out his glory and his will through so much of the calamity and difficulty that's found in the world today. So God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. And I hope that you can join us next week. God bless you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.